Hello, and welcome to the General Aviation Awards live webcast. I'm your host, Greg Fife. Having spent 22 years at the National Transportation Safety Board in a variety of positions, including an aircraft accident investigator, one of the things that I've always uh, really been concerned about, of course, is safety. But in order to enhance aviation safety, the best way to do that is through knowledge, because knowledge is power. Tonight, I'm going to introduce you to three people that provide great information that also received a, an award for that information and their skills, their backgrounds, their professionalism that got them as the 2018 General Aviation Award winners for this past year. So before I begin, I just wanna tell you a little bit about the format we're gonna to have tonight. This is more of a fireside chat. This is not going to be some sort of formal, I'm gonna read a script, we're gonna get a scripted question and a scripted answer. This is more about us just getting to know these three recipients. I just play the moderator. I'm gonna be asking some questions and facilitating some questions and answers, but these three folks are gonna give you some very good information, great tips that I think will enhance not only your knowledge of aviation, but of course, probably gonna improve not only your flying, but if you're a maintenance person, you're gonna get some benefit out of that. And of course, if you're a manager of any kind of flight department or flight school, you're gonna have some new tools in your toolbox to use for that flight school. The whole purpose of this is to introduce you to three folks who earned this award from this past year based on their skills, their, their abilities, their knowledge, their passion for aviation in a variety of disciplines. Now, before we really get started with this, I want to just discuss a couple of things. First off, over the past several months, we've had a number of high visibility aircraft accidents. They've involved DMS operations. They've involved general aviation operations. There was a, a very high visibility accident that happened on Super Bowl Sunday. And then, of course, we lost a Boeing 767 going into Houston over the weekend. All of this being said, the question is why? And no matter what your skills are, no matter what certificates you hold, no matter how much flight time you have, no one is immune to an accident. What we try to do though, through our personal skills, abilities and knowledge is learn and continue to learn. Learn from the tragedies, try to take those lessons learned so that we can incorporate it into our own flying so that we can reduce or mitigate that risk that we know is inherent to aviation. The General Aviation Awards are one of those things that very few people really understand and, and have heard about. If you're at Oshkosh and you happen to be by the FAA Forum building, you'll find out that during the middle of the day, there are award recipients that receive this, this national honor for Flight Instructor of the Year, for Maintenance Technician of the Year, and for the Fast Team Representative of the Year but nobody really understands the process. And as you can see from this slide, this is a process where these folks are nominated. They are recognized for their talents, they're recognized for their dedication, they're recognized by their peer group for the, the things that they've contributed as a flight instructor of the year, maintenance tech of the year, or a fast team representative. This is an annual award. It does take uh, a, a nomination and there are certain criteria that must be met for that particular award. 
And so with these, uh, this being said, this is a great honor. This isn't something that is just handed out lightly. So tonight you're gonna hear from these three folks who have worked very hard throughout their respective careers, not for this award, but have been recognized for their talent and their passion to have received this award. The three recipients tonight, Daniel Peter Christman, also known as the Taz, uh, is the 2018 National Flight Instructor of the Year. William Pancake Jr. is the 2018 General Aviation Award winner as the AMT uh, for 2018. And then Kathleen Cavanero is the Fast Team Representative of the Year for 2018. You're gonna find their uh, basic discussions and their presentations not only somewhat entertaining, but of course, very informative. So I encourage you to pay close attention. You're gonna pick up some great tips, tricks, and possibly even some traps to avoid in their presentation. So with that, let's start with Dan the Taz. Dan, as you can see from the slide, um, he has a military uniform on and he has some civilian clothes. And that's because Dan plays both roles. He is a lieutenant colonel in the military, as well as being a civilian pilot and flight instructor. And during the course of his particular careers, because we split them into two, he's had a passion for flying since a very young age. So with that being said as well, Dan, I know that you have a lot of certificates, a lot of ratings, uh, definitely a lot of flight time in a variety of different aircraft. Can you give us a little background? What got you into aviation? And, and I know that looking at your bio, there was a, a bit of a, a carrot that was thrown out by your parents to really get you started flying. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was a real young kid, my dad was in the Air Force and uh, used to take me down to the base. And that's when I first started seeing airplanes flying around. And that's where my, my love for aviation really started. So um, when I got into middle school, my parents started telling me, hey, you need to make good grades to be a pilot and, you know, all that standard stuff. And they started, you know, they, they carried, as you were, you were mentioning, um, was basically if I got on the honor roll, they'd start paying for my uh, flight training. So um, that's, that's what I did. And that's, uh, that's how I started. Pretty good carrot to be throwing out there for good grades at that age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, you know, I, I don't want to say I was a great student, so it was it was definitely tough for me, but uh, it, it definitely got me motivated. So, And then what took you to, to the military? Well, uh, like I said, my dad was in the military, and so I've kind of always had that, that in the back of my mind. And uh, so when I went through school, I went through uh, uh, Purdue University and got all my ratings and stuff like that. And uh, um, I was on a track I wanted to do. Um, airlines and then uh, possibly do like reserve unit like my dad was in the reserve so I was thinking something like that and then 9-11 uh, happened and uh, my airline job basically that I had kind of went away so I decided I was gonna go active duty and uh, it's actually turned out to be a very good thing for me so now switching, how I got there now switching gears going to the civilian side uh, other than just being a pilot why did you really take up this pursuit of being a flight instructor I think uh, for the most part, so when I was a kid, you know, when I started learning how to fly, I learned in a flying club and uh, we were all really close knit 
type of people. And uh, I had one instructor who was, uh, he was kind of like the, you know, the, the grandfather of, of the, the club. He basically started it back in 1957 and he was there for the, you know, the entire time. And he knew everything and flown everything. And uh, I saw his passion for it. And that's something that, that really got me interested. And, you know, for some, for whatever reason, um, it, it just clicked with me and I enjoy instructing. I like teaching people how to fly. How long have you been doing that? Uh, it'll be 20 years uh, this year, actually. So Great. How many students? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> that's a good number. If you can't <laughs> yeah. count on one hand, then that's a very good number. Yeah. They've all been successful. Yeah. I mean, by the time you add in the military plus the civilian, I, I couldn't tell you. Several hundreds, probably. Now, as a flight instructor, of course, you're seeing the best and the worst of students at a you know, variety of different times throughout their, their learning curve, if you will. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you see on the good side? What makes a good student? What makes a, a student that wants to continue to learn? And, of course, what makes a student successful? And then what are some of the things that you've seen where they're not so good or they, uh, they, you know, they fail? They don't, they right. don't succeed as a pilot. Right. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, with the passion, you know, aviation for, you know, for all of us, all three of us that got this award and yourself is included and everybody's watching. Aviation is a passion. And uh, I've seen some students, they, you know, they just walk in as soon as they get to the airport, their eyes light up and they just have that passion. You tell them to go home and read something and they'll read it. And then three other things and they'll come back with 10 questions. And those are the type of students that I think really succeed, you know, and then we have other students that, uh, um, that maybe this is just something that they thought would be kind of cool to do and then maybe they don't necessarily have that passion so they don't put forth as much effort towards it and uh, I, th I think those are the ones that uh, don't necessarily um, make it quite as well so um, a lot of it has to do with the instruction too. Can you tell that when you first meet a student, somebody that does a prospective student, can you tell if they're going to be a good student or not or does, does it take you a little bit of time? Uh, I, I would say I can tell if the passion's there kind of right away by the way they ask questions, you know, if they're just kind of standing around and, you know, their hands in their pockets type of stuff, or, you know, if their eyes light up when you ask them about something, you take them out to the airplane, you show them what, a, what an aileron is or, you know, what, you know, what the altimeter is or how the airspeed indicator works. If, if they're really engaged with you, then, then yeah, you can tell they've got the passion. What are the things that you see that are probably the hardest for the students to really pick up or what kind of techniques do you use as a flight instructor to, uh, to get them through and get a student through a difficult situation? Right. So um, that kind of goes into, into my, my first topic here. Um, so as an instructor, you know, it's very important to uh, make sure that you're pre-briefing and debriefing your students. Um, I, I've seen a lot of students or a lot of instructors um, through different schools that I've taught or different ones that I, or other students that that come to me from other schools. And uh, the, one of the biggest problems is most of the instructors are young and uh, they just want to get, get their hours and get to the next big thing. You know, not all of them. I, I don't want to characterize all instructors like that. Um, but unfortunately, we, we see that a lot. Um, and honestly, when you're one of the biggest advantages for the student is if you're going to go out and teach them something, talk about it on the ground. You know, when you're zero knots, one G, and uh, they, you can, they can ask you questions. They're not, you know, bumping around in, in the winds uh, and turbulence and trying to fly the airplane while you're talking and, and stuff like that. So tell them about it on the ground 
talk through it, explain the maneuver, and then show it to them when you get up in the air, you know. And, uh, and then when you come back, um, you can debrief to it. So now that you've talked about it, and then you're going to show them in the air so they recognize everything that you've told them. And then when you come back, you can talk about those points that uh, maybe they didn't necessarily do quite as well or some of the things um, they did really well. Um, and then hopefully they can gain some, uh, some insight from that as well. Now, when you do your debrief, do you allow the student, do you ask them, hey, how do you think the flight went? Or do you do the critiquing and let them listen? How, what, what kind of technique works best for not only you, but, you know, a very successful flight instructor? Sure, absolutely. So, like I said, part of the, uh, the pre-brief or the, what you should be doing is setting out those objectives. What are we actually trying to accomplish on this flight? And when you set those objectives and the desired outcomes, uh, when you come back, you can ask the student, did we achieve those objectives? You know, um, and if they can answer yes, we did, then you understand, then they understand what, uh, what has been accomplished there. So, and I think that's important because most of the, most of your learning actually does occur in a debrief. You know, as we, as we're taught as instructors, you know, learning is a change in behavior as a result of experience. Well, they can't learn anything if they haven't experienced it. So once you talk, them, talk to them about it, you get up in the air and you show it to them, now you come back, now they've got that experience and they can, they can learn from it. What are some of the other things that you see overall as a flight instructor with the students and some of the barriers to learning and the successes? Yeah, so that kind of flows right into my next one here. So having a good training plan is always important. You know, Part 141 schools do a really good job because they're regulated by the FAA. They have to follow that, that guideline. Part 61, on the other hand, doesn't necessarily do that. You know, you can basically do whatever you want as long as you, by the time they get to their check ride, they're able to have uh, met all the tasks. Um, but I think a syllabus is a very good, point, uh, good thing to use as a Part 61 instructor. Um, it gives the student a roadmap for, uh, for their training so they know where they're at. Um, they know what stage of training they're, they're in. Um, unfortunately, I've seen students come to me and they've, they've been flying for 30, 40 hours and they still haven't soloed and they have no idea how much more time it's going to take for them to, uh, to get their rating. You know? And they know, you know, they know right away that hey, it takes 40 hours to get your private, you know, is at least what the FAA says. Um, so if you have that syllabus, it gives them a roadmap. So if something is not necessarily going as, as planned, you know, they're not meeting objectives, which goes back to the, the pre-brief and the debrief. Um, then they know how they're doing, and they can understand why is it taking them a little bit longer in the syllabus. Anything else as far as some of the, the barriers that uh, you see to learning? Um, so, you know, as you go into uh, the inefficient training, so a lot of times, uh, this is kind of, a lot of these slides are going to kind of go towards uh, together. Um, but if they don't have that syllabus, they don't have that objective, you might miss, miss maneuvers, you know, so there's not a logical progression for their training. So, um, you know, like I said, like I said on the slide there, missed maneuvers or topics requiring multiple flights. So you get all the way up to the solo, the instructor thinks, okay, he's been doing great. He's done all of his, his patterns. And then you look at the regs of the stuff that's required and he's like, oh crap, we haven't done S turns or something like that. If you're following a syllabus, or you know, uh, then you would have that, and you're you're going to make those miles those milestones. Um, some of the other stuff I see is not maximizing that downtime. So uh, what am I what I mean by that is you know if we have a weather day or a maintenance cancel or something like that, still get the student in here. There's other things that you can go over. You know, plan across country with them. 
Um, unfortunately, I see uh, students, you know, if it's raining out here in the desert, everybody thinks it's crazy, you know, and they, they go home. Um, that's a perfect opportunity to plan across country. Don't wait until it's sunny and the winds are calm to sit there in the, in, you know, in the school and plan your cross country for three hours. That's the time you should be flying. So you can maximize that. You can do uh, emergency procedures training, which we're going uh, which is my next topic there. Um, so uh, as a as a pilot, you know, one of the keys to successful outcome of an emergency is understanding the systems of the airplane understanding uh, the procedures that the, the manufacturer wants you to use in, in that aircraft. Um, how how the pilot can re Go ahead. How important is that operational discipline? Because it's one thing to practice it. You do it at high altitude where it's a safe environment, but when something happens like an engine failure close to the ground, all of a sudden that seems to change. The pilot gets out of that rote mentality. What yes. do you break that down because that fear factor can be overwhelming. Oh, absolutely. And, and that, that's kind of some of the, the barriers to it. You know, so um, pilots are, are scared, you know, that, that startle effect that, that people will have, you know, when you're in, in the training environment, you know, if we're in the pattern, and you're going to do an, a simulated engine failure. Unfortunately, here at my airport, we have a tower. So we have to call and tell them that we want to, you know, a short approach that kind of keys into the student that, hey, I'm probably about ready to lose my engine. In the training environment, we always fail the engine, you know, opposite the, the numbers so they can make their landing, all that kind of stuff. In the real world, that's not going to happen. You know, it could happen on climb out when they're, you know, 30 feet in the air and stuff like that. So the, a good way to, to handle that is to go through uh, scenario-based training, you know, talk to them, give them scenarios and see how they're going to react to it. Um, a lot of times when I'm flying, when we're doing our cross countries, I'll give them uh, a sim or a situation, I'll tell them, hey, your oil pressure just went to zero. What are you thinking? What, how's that affecting your engine? Um, where's the nearest airport? Uh, things of that nature. So, um, What are some of the other traps or tricks or things that you like to impart on a student that, uh, that again, will make them successful, take that, that stress and anxiety out of learning how to fly, which there is a lot of, as, uh, you know, not only as a student pilot, but through all of the ratings and certificates they may go through. Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, a, a good book knowledge, um, going through and understanding all the, the scenarios that they could get, just getting into that, that scenario-based training, but understanding the systems of the airplane and the procedures and how they all relate is very, very important. And you bring, um, that, and you bring a key point up because you know, with loss of control, which has been a big topic over the last couple of years and how we can minimize or mitigate or eliminate loss of control accidents. Uh, right. I see on your slide, you've got some, some good ideas and some, and some traps as well. Sure, sure, absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't want to steal Catherine's thunder here because I know this is kind of in her wheelhouse as well. Um, but, uh, you know, more GA pilots and passengers die from accidents involving loss of control than any other factor. And, uh, it's very important for general aviation pilots to understand that the military and corporate aviation uh, airlines, they do a pretty good job of sending most of their pilots through some sort of upset recovery training, but your average weekend flyer doesn't necessarily get that. And I think that's where, where courses like Catherine's or, or many of the other uh, schools out there that's, that does this kind of stuff is very important. And it's, uh, it's something that all, I, I wish all pilots would, would do that. Um, and but uh, what are some of the other things that uh, that you know you want to impart to 
to the audience with regard to not only being a good flight instructor, but being a recipient that is a student of a good yeah. flight instructor or identifying a poor flight instructor. So, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if uh, as a, um, can you rephrase that again? I'm sorry. Well, in talking about, you know, finding out whether or not you have a good student or a bad student, I know that student learning, they too are, are of course, you know, sizing up their flight instructor. Are they a good flight instructor? Am I learning? You know, stay, I mean, you can probably see that because I've seen it before where if a, if a pilot can't fly a stabilized approach, is it because they just don't know how to fly or is it poor right. instruction? Something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that, that obviously brings me up to the, to the next slide here. And uh, I've seen this unfortunately many times um there i've had students come from other schools and you know they're they're saying you know like i mentioned earlier 20 30 hours in the pattern they haven't soloed yet and uh why is that and i go fly with them and they're manhandling the airplane and uh you know so they're trying to force the airplane around the pattern and uh, they're not stabilized and uh, one of the issues that that's going to lead to um is it could potentially get them into a loss of control scenario um i've actually had Several students tell me that their instructor told them not to touch the trim, which I have no idea where the instructor got that. The airplane flying handbook clearly says on several pages to trim up the airplane. Um, and the nice thing about that is once you get the plane stabilized, right? So um, the FAA says to maintain a stabilized descent rate, maintain a specified airspeed, make sure your checklists are all completed, you're configured, um, and then that's going to require a little, if you know, or minor changes in your in your pitch control or your airspeed control that's going to make it a lot easier for to land like i always tell my students you know trim is your friend use it um and it'll help you fly the airplane well and wrapping up with you can you give us a little bit of over you know just a little bit of uh, an oversight of you know what it is that you think that the, the the audience really needs to understand not only about the flight instruction but you know being a good student no matter what certificate or rating you're going so, exactly so um probably uh my last slide or yeah my last slide there is talking about the, the career long training so as a as a pilot um you're always a student so you should always be continuously learning um try to put as much knowledge as you can you know i think of it as a bank account trying to put as much uh knowledge or, or money if you will in that bank account um you don't want to uh, be in a situation where your bank account is uh, empty and you bounce a check, you know, uh, to where, you know, you don't have the knowledge needed to handle an emergency or something along those lines. So there, there's, lots of things that, there's lots of things you can do to continue that training, you know, new ratings, new endorsements, take a facility tour, go to a, go see ATC, tour a tower, uh, do some pilot assisted maintenance, you know, things like that. And of course, use the wings program. There's lots of uh, uh, slides and, and programs on there that you can use to help uh, increase your knowledge. One last thing before I let you go, and that is, do you really think automation helps the learning process or hinders the learning process? Uh, it, it can be both. So um, pilots are very good at uh, manual tasks. They're not very good at systems management type stuff. So um, flying uh, the RPAs, I see that all the time. It's very sensor, uh, sensor intuitive. So, you know, we're on autopilot and we're just managing stuff the whole time. And it gets boring and monotonous sometimes. Um, and that can lead to, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily taking the, the due diligence that you, that you really need. Excellent. 
Well, thank you, Dan. I really appreciate the time and congratulations on your award as the 2018 uh, General Aviation Flight Instructor of the Year. Continue to keep up the good work and continue to do well in both your military career and your civilian career. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our next recipient um, of, is the 2018 General Aviation Award winner as the Aviation Technician of the Year, uh, Mr. William Pancake Jr. Um, from West Virginia, has spent over 62 years as a maintenance technician and, of course, a pilot. Welcome, Bill. Good evening. Glad to be here. Well, in looking at uh, your storied career, I see that you too, like many of us, started your flying at a very young age. I'm, I don't know if you had a big enticing carrot like Dan did, where his parents were going to pay for his flying if he got good grades. How did you get involved in flying and then, of course, on the maintenance side of the house? Well, that goes back a long ways, the early 1940s. Fairchild Aircraft were building the C-119 flying boxcar during World War II, and they would do test flights up over Kaiser, West Virginia. And mm -hmm. it just fascinated a heck out of a three or a four or five-year-old kid uh, seeing that thing uh, flying up there. And I was always curious with mechanical uh, equipment, like electrical, mechanical, uh, everything like that fascinated me. And seeing that C-119 hover around up there in the sky, how something that big could stay up there. So that really sparked my interest in aviation. Uh, everything I like to do, you can find in an airplane. I like uh, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, all that you can find in aviation, meteorology, uh, woodworking, metalworking, welding, painting, fabricating parts, all of that. Absolutely. Involved with the airplane. Now, did you did you start flying first, or did you get into the maintenance side of uh, of the house? You know, when it comes to aviation, what, what really enticed you? Well, I got into the maintenance part of it first because I wasn't old enough to obtain a pilot certificate uh, certificate yet. So I started working around the airport, uh, doing odd jobs or whatever I could do to make a nickel. And uh, one of the most interesting things was, <clears throat> I guess, my first run-in with the FAA happened in 1954. The, uh, well, the CAA then, I was behind a hangar doing some maintenance on an aircraft that uh, had an unscheduled off-airport landing. Unscheduled off-airport, I like that. Sir? I like <laughs> that. That's good. Yeah. So I was doing some maintenance on the wingtip outside in the sunlight back then. We had grade A fabric. That was before sick and night came around. And I saw these two gentlemen uh, snooping around in a hangar and finally they came out back and they had on a suit and tie and I knew that wasn't good. <laughs> and they wanted to know where the mechanic was that uh, did the maintenance here on the field and I said, well, he's over in another little airport. He stops by here occasionally, but uh, I do all the work. I do the oil changes and 
the fabric patching, whatever needs done. And uh, that didn't go over too well with the CAA. About a week later, the uh, FBO operator got a two-page typewritten letter from the CAA about kids performing, or unsupervised kid performing maintenance on the aircraft. So we had to lay low a little bit. And of course, they came around to make their monthly visit the last Wednesday of each month. So we just forgot it was the last Wednesday of the month, being in the summertime, and I was off from school. So, but anyway, I got to know those two fellows, and I worked at another small airport in Burlington, West Virginia. Uh, when I became 16, I got a car, and I could drive to Burlington, and I worked there, and I met those two, same two fellows there, and uh, probably around 1957, I met them there, but uh when I went to take my private pilot written exam at the Cumberland, Maryland airport, which is about 18, 19 miles from Kaiser, yep. uh, the Kaiser field closed the 1st of June of 1956. So I had to go to Cumberland and I worked there for a while. And when I was taking my, uh, or going to take my private pilot written exam, who showed up was the same two fellows that caught me behind the hangar. Uh, doing aircraft maintenance, and I was scared to death because I knew I was I was going to go down. Hmm. This uh, fellow John Gibson walks over to me and he said, "You're the kid behind the hangar performing aircraft maintenance." My heart was a pounding like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> he stuck out his hand to shake my hand. He said, "Congratulations! We we're glad to see that you're continuing aviation." and taking your private pilot written exam. That's well, that great. Made me feel better. Uh, back then it was 50 true and false questions and I aced it. I had a study course from uh, uh, ACME uh, exams in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm -hmm. And I still have a copy of that exam that I uh, studied for my private pilot. There was about two or three hundred questions on it, and they said they're all assumed to be true. So that started my flying, and uh, I worked through and uh, got a private pilot certificate, a commercial certificate, uh, multi-engine, instrument, flight instructor, uh, airframe and power plant. Of course, back then we called it uh, A&E, aircraft and engine. So there in the middle 50s, they started changing the name to uh, A&P, Airframe and Power Plant. And then I guess it changed again to uh, Aviation Maintenance Technician. I guess that sounds more sophisticated than an A&P. But I worked there. I had to work hard. I had uh, no money to go to school. Our family was very poor. And uh, I had uh, rich hobbies. But I struggled, and uh, a lot of my flight instruction uh, was given to me for work on her airplane. So is that what got you into? Is that what got you into the, to the vintage aircraft? Is that why you focus more on the vintage aircraft because that was the era that you know you were working on the airplanes? Is that the passion? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, my main reason for the vintage aircraft. The, the place I worked in Burlington, West Virginia. 
uh, Baker's Air Park, it was a dealer for the Ronca aircraft. And uh, I did a lot of the very first fabric jobs on a lot of the Aronka 7 and 11 series. At that time, Aronka was not building aircraft. They went out of the light plane business in 1951. In fact, the last airplane came out of Middletown, Ohio, was an Aronka Sedan 1491 Hotel, which is owned by Jim Thompson in Roberts, Illinois. And uh, I did a lot of work for that air on that airplane for Jim. I did a major overhaul in the Continental C-145. I restored that engine back to its original condition. The original crankcase or Continental gray on the crankcase and the black on the cylinders. And now, and then, during all of that work, is that where you developed? Because I know that you have you hold a number of STCs uh, for these vintage aircraft. Is that where? you were developing these STCs as you were working on these airplanes? No, I didn't develop the STCs until years later, just recently. Uh, Charlie Lasher in Florida had an STC for a C-85-12 engine in the Ronca Champ, but there's a lot of other options in my STCs that I uh, did that uh, Mr. Lasher didn't. Hmm. With my STC for the Ronca 7 uh, and 11 series, on the 7 series, uh, you can have a C85-12 or a C85-14 or a C90-12 or a C90-14 or a 16. Hmm. That gives you an option for an electrical starter. And I have a lot of options for that. You can use the original A65 exhaust system a Cessna 150 exhaust system or the Aronka uh, Hanlon Wilson exhaust system. You do not need the large vertical fin. You get a gross weight increase of 100 pounds on the 7 series. And on the 11 series, the Chief, uh, you can use the C85-8 or a C85-12 with the start electrical system. You do not need the large fin. That is optional. Uh, the other uh, uh, conversions require a large fin, but mine does not. Great. And something that a lot of people wanted. And also I have STCs for rib stitching, the mm. champ wings and the chief wings, and also using pop rivets. And I had to do testing before the FAA to witness my testing for this approval for the uh, fabric attachment for the Aronka 7 and 11 series aircraft. Now, speaking of fabric, given the fact that you have, and, and we talk about vintage aircraft, people think really old aircraft. Well, those old aircraft are still flying today uh, for a variety of reasons. What are some of the things that you see when you're working on these vintage aircraft that can help the audience, those that, that have a, a Cub or an Aronka, you know, that could benefit you know, from your knowledge working on these aircraft. Okay, when you're buying an aircraft, the best thing to do is get a pre-buy inspection on it. Have a competent uh, maintenance technician to perform the pre-buy inspection. One of the biggest things I run into is uh, CG limits, weight and balance. Uh, most of the Aronkas came out of the factory around 700 and 
90 pounds and they grow and wait as they get older for numerous reasons modification different type of fabric more paying on it adding equipment uh, uh, dry cell storage batteries lights numerous other things and it continues to grow in weight and I'll look at an airplane I looked at one several years ago and the paperwork said it empty weight was 808 pounds well it had a a larger engine on it, it had a starter generator on it a large battery and it still had 808 pounds and we asked the uh the person selling the airplane, if they minded, if we weighed it, and he said, no, go ahead, I guarantee you that's the original weight. And it weighed 989 pounds. Hmm. And uh, he kind of got upset with me. My scales were wrong. Well, I've weighed airplanes for years, and my scales are certified by the uh, state weights and measure people. And, uh, but weight and balance, uh, age of the fabric, time on the engine, there's another thing. There are a lot of the older airplanes at the time, uh, a lot of them had no recording tachometers, and if they did, sometimes the tack quit working. They started out with a new tack at zero. Well, that looked like a good selling point right there with a zero tack on it. But uh, how, about, how, about the how about the structure of the aircraft, you know, wood versus metal tube? Um, what do you see with some of the structural issues on a pre-buy? Okay, a lot of these steel tube, Aronkas, Cubs, Taylor Crafts, you look around where the fabric wraps around the lines drawn, and if you see blisters or bubbles under that fabric, most likely that lines drawn is rusted between the fabric and the tube itself. The wood structure and the weighing, uh, when the uh, FAA came out with that SPAR AD for the Aronka wings in the year 2000, there were so many wings turned down and there was absolutely nothing wrong. And I've gotten so many calls that people will find the SPARs laminated without uh, reinforcement placed on the lamination and they'll turn them down for that and I tell them to read page seven and the service manual, it explains that the spars are laminated, made up of pieces. And a lot of times a, a untrained eye will look at that lamination on the spar and they'll see a glue joint and they'll mistake it for a cracked spar. And I know several wings have been brought to me to look at after the fabric was removed. And I look at the spars and I see absolutely nothing wrong with the spars just because the trained eye wasn't familiar with page seven in the service manual. And now you, what, I'm sorry. You had mentioned earlier as well, besides looking at now the structure, you know, some of these airplanes, at least the majority of them, were built without electrical systems. Some of them now have had electrical systems installed. So I would presume that you'd want to look very carefully at the installation of that electrical system because it was one of those things where the majority of these airplanes, even today, are still hand-propped. What is the thing that you see with hand-propping and the benefits or even possibly the negatives of, of an electrical system um, and hand-propping of those airplanes? 
that was one of the big reasons for my STC is to help avoid a lot of unnecessary hand cropping. And that's why uh, I uh, wrote the STCs for the C85 and C90 engines, give you a choice of engines here for the 7 series and the C85-12 uh, for an electrical system for the 11 series, which is the cheat. And uh, oh, I've seen quite a few hazard hand propping. I, I used to hand prop a variety of aircraft, but I will not hand prop an airplane anymore that has an electrical starter on it. A friend of mine down in Southern Virginia got in a serious accident, lost an arm. He was hand propping an aircraft and and the person sitting in the cockpit tried to start her while he was getting ready to pull a prop in it. Uh, he lost an arm. But so what's, uh, a, what's a good tip that if someone out there that's listening, what should they be doing if they do hand prop an aircraft and it doesn't have an electrical system? Should they have somebody in there that's at least qualified or at least understands aviation? Do they need to be chalking the wheels? Give us a couple of things that you think that you know would be beneficial to these folks. Okay, if there's a competent person that's familiar with the airplane, you're familiar with that person to sit in the cockpit while you hand prop it and coordinate with each other. The guy pulling the prop has the authority to say contact or, or switch off or so forth. But to have a person sitting in that airplane, you're out someplace uh, for fuel and you need to prop your airplane and the person said, oh, I'll, I'll prop you. Well, I can tell the second I see the way he lays his hands on that prop to whether he's familiar with hand propping or not. If he grips that prop with his hands clear where the trailing edge of the prop, no, 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 you're not going to prop my airplane. But if he just the fingertips right over the edge of the prop, uh, then I know when he gets a hold of the prop and moves it and the way he's standing, I, uh, but I usually talk to that person before I ever say, hey, yeah, you can hand prop me. But if there's not a person there to hand prop me, I will tie the airplane down. I will shut the fuel off. I will chalk it and I will set the throttle and I'll say to myself, throttle closed, throttle cracked, eighth of an inch. And I'll make sure that there's no one else around in danger of the prop. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but we're going to run out a little bit of a time problem here. But as a as an overall safety tips, tricks, traps, what would you what would you suggest to the audience in in an overall scheme working with vintage aircraft? Some of the the things that you want to look for. I know that you talked about it on the pre buy. So what are those things that you know, the, the owners of these vintage aircraft should be concerned about. Is it, you know, finding a mechanic that has a lot of knowledge about the airplane? Is it, you yes. know, all of the original books and, and that kind of thing? What is it that they should be looking for if you're going to own a vintage aircraft? A lot of times there's uh, unapproved parts or, or equipment installed on the aircraft that there's no sign off for. Uh, improper circuit breakers, improper or no circuit breakers or fuses. Believe me, I've found that many times that wired straight in. Uh, no master switch. You just, I've seen radios mounted and uh, 
there's no master switch. Uh, and and what are the regulations? What are the regulations that really, uh, you know, vintage aircraft owners should be focused on? Uh, say again, please. Which which one of the regulations, or if there are a series of regulations that really address vintage aircraft that that owners should be very familiar with? FAR is Part Forty Three, Appendix D. That has to do with uh, annual 100-hour inspection. You can make up your own inspection checklist, or you can go by what's uh, FAR's Part 43, Appendix D, go by that, and, and uh, go through, check everything. And if you find certain equipment mounted on aircraft, make sure there's approved paperwork for that. Uh, some things may require an FAA field approval, uh, some installations will require an STC, some may require a DER, designated engineer representative, to approve that aircraft for a return to service. I find a lot of equipment been installed on aircraft and there's no record of any paperwork. And I asked the, uh, the owner or the seller, he said, well, it was that way when I got it. And it's went through an seven annual inspections. Hasn't the IA questioned any of this? No, it, it just and does the inspection and goes and on. I think, well, I don't think the FAA is going to answer aircraft return to service, and he should make sure that everything on there is approved or has some approval for the installation on that particular aircraft, such as a field approval or an STC. Good. Well, thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure talking with you and congratulations again on being the 2018 maintenance tech of the year on the general aviation side of the house. Congratulations. Thank you. It was a great honor and I enjoyed this time on the air here tonight. I wish we had longer time and I felt better, but uh, I uh, just got out of the hospital last week and I'm recuperating. Well, take care of yourself. We'll be, forward, we'll be looking forward to uh, seeing you next year at Oshkosh and giving us some more tips, tricks, and traps. One last thing. People uh, wanting to hand prop an older aircraft attend a seminar at the Vintage Hangar on hand propping. It is very uh, educational to us attend that seminar. They have it several times a week there. Great. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Bill. <clears throat> Our final recipient is the Fast Team 2018 Fast Team uh, honoree, Catherine Cavanero. She's got a, uh, a very impressive resume. And when I first met her in, in Oshkosh, um, I felt very small because <laughs> she is a, she is a, a, a mathematician. She is an, an aviatrix, and I learned a, a lot about her and her, her particular skills when it comes to an aircraft. So welcome, Catherine, and, Catherine, and congratulations on your, uh, your 2018 General Aviation Award Fast Team Member of the Year. Thank you so much. Well, I, I just want to say y'all are smarter than I am because uh, I'm the one with the late start in aviation. Yeah, well, it, from looking at your presentation and, and having talked with you, I think you caught up pretty quickly. So. <laughs> I'm, I am making up for lost time. 
Well, as, uh, as the audience can see, you have a, a very impressive resume. Um, you said you started late in life as far as aviation compared to those of us uh, like Dan and Bill and myself. Tell us about how you got started, what got your interest, and then I'm going to ask you a very pointed question about why you do what you do with an aircraft spinning it to the ground. Okay, well, I grew up in California and watching the planes take off and land at Moffett uh, Field out there. And I was just gobsmacked with aviation from the word go. Uh, it wasn't in the cards for me because I couldn't afford uh, flying lessons. So I took a bachelor's degree in mathematics uh, from Santa Clara University. And I did my PhD in mathematics at Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I got my first job out of graduate school at uh, the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. And in May of 1999, I had my first son and I got tenure at the university and I did what anybody would do. I walked out to the airport and I signed up for flying lessons. <laughs> That's great. Well, it, it's obvious by the, uh, the certificates and ratings that you hold that uh, you continued that pursuit and it has now become a passion. So mm -hmm. tell us what all of a sudden got you involved in trying to spin airplanes to the ground and, and figure out what works and what doesn't work. Sure. So I um, learned to fly at the airport here on campus, and it was also home to uh, aviation author and aerobatic pilot Bill Kirshner. Oh, and yeah. he took an interest in me uh, due to my math background. So I helped him uh, with some of the math uh, that went into his books. And he introduced me to the folks at the University of Tennessee Space Institute, and I did some uh, flight testing for them. I did some research uh, for them, and they also let me take uh, grad classes in aeronautical engineering, which I loved. So I just got to love aerobatics, but honestly, if uh, the mathematics, if the uh, technical part of flying weren't there, I probably wouldn't be as interested in it. So math makes me love flying more, and my flying makes me love math more. That's great. Now, I know that, again, just uh, having met you in, in, uh, in July when we were in Oshkosh together and presenting the award, one of the things that I was fascinated about was, of course, your presentation. And I learned a lot of new things about spins and steep spirals and stalls in, in a variety of configurations. Can you tell the audience a little bit about, you know, some of the misnomers? Because I know that there's probably some misperceptions about spins and steep spirals. Of course, a lot of folks are definitely afraid of even thinking about it, or as flight instructors, they don't like to do it, which is part of the flight instructor uh, certificate is actually doing spins. So can you give us a little understanding of tips and tricks and traps and, and maybe some of the things that the, the, the pilots don't know out there that are watching? Absolutely. So um, I use my platform giving safety talks for the FAA WINGS program and my uh, aviation articles to dispel myths. Uh, and a number of those myths out there uh, surround, as you say, uh, stalls and spins. And during each one of my presentations, I show a number of videos that I either have collected or generated myself. And I'd love to share some of those with you. The first video that I have to share with you uh, involves the um, airflow above and below a wing. And that curved upper surface, as well as an angle of attack, a positive angle of attack, 
means that the air flowing across the top goes faster. Uh, so there's a, there's a lower pressure environment upstairs and a higher pressure environment downstairs. So you get a net force in the upward direction. I like this video for a couple more reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, you'll see that the airflow across the top is much greater than is needed for, say, two air molecules to start at the front of the wing together. Uh, the, there's a common misconception that in order for them to meet at the back of the wing, uh, that the one on top has to travel faster. And that's just, that's false. Uh, it, it travels actually much faster than it needs to to meet up with the one below. In fact, those two air molecules will never see each other again. I like the video too because it shows you that little bit of disturbed flow at the back of the wing. You'll never get rid of that, but you'll minimize it with a pointed trailing edge. So in the next slide, you'll see a diagram that I drew showing that as you raise the angle of attack, of a wing, uh, what happens is that bit of disturbed flow starts to move forward along the wing, and that's called a separation bubble. Uh, and when that separation bubble envelops enough of the wing, that's when our wing stalls and the flow separates. If you had tufting on the wing, what would happen is uh, over the part where the separation bubble is, uh, the flow would be erratic and it would even be moving backwards. So you can tell with tufting on a wing exactly which part of the wing is stalled and which part is flying. Wow, that's great information. And of course, that is one of those myth perceptions where we've all been taught that the molecules, you know, it does meet at the very end, but uh, that's some great information. Yeah, and I, just a quick note about uh, stalling speed, uh, that's, there is a uh, speed at which an, a wing will stall, but it varies with a lot of things, including uh, weight and load factor uh, and things like that. Increased weight uh, will make your uh, stall speed higher as well as uh, a banked level turn. Uh, so even moving the CG forward in the airplane will make the stall speed go up. So. Uh, I know people sometimes focus in on stall speed, but um, really it's a function of angle of attack. Great. And carrying on with what you're talking about now with the stalls, and then, of course, if you let the stall really get aggravated, the airplane rolls off on a wing, and then we enter into the proverbial, everybody says it's a spin. A lot of times it's not. It's just a steep spiral. It all depends on really how coordinated or uncoordinated that event is. Absolutely. And I've got some videos coming up in just a little bit about that. But just real quick, here's a video of that uh, stall. This is a smoke tunnel video where you can see the uh, progression of the separation bubble come forward on the wing. Uh, the good news about a, a stall is if you don't like it, then lower the angle of attack and that flow is immediately reattached. So that is the big answer in terms of uh, stall recovery and spin avoidance is just lower the angle of attack of a wing. And in a lot of folks, when they when they lower that angle, some get very aggressive in pushing mm -hmm. the nose yeah. down. And that too is a bit of a misnomer because you really don't need to push the nose that far over, especially if you're low to the ground and something happens because you don't have a lot of margin. 
Correct. Yeah. So, you know, that's a balancing act when I teach aerobatics and spins. Uh, you know, we like to find that sweet spot. If you push forward too gently, well, then you won't recover. But if you push forward too hard, then sure, uh, that's hard on the airplane and you're losing unwanted altitude. Uh, so we like to find that sweet spot where you're recovering, but with uh, an efficiency of altitude loss. Great. So what else do you have for us? Because this is uh, definitely of great interest to me. Thank you. Yeah. So um, one thing I share with students is uh, I hear a lot about uh, how unpredictable stalls are. You know, people call me up and say, oh, I was stalling the airplane and my left wing dropped. And this airplane's left wing always drops in a stall. And, and so, you know, I um, tell them a bit about coordination. And I know that stalls and spins seem unpredictable, but they're, co they're totally predictable. And I, that's what I like to share with students. Uh, so for instance, um, during flight, if say this airplane, here is the turn coordinator and it shows a bank turn to the left, uh, when the ball is deflected toward the inside of your turn, that means you're in a slip. And whenever you're in a slip, it's your high wing that stalls first. It rolls over, you know, or it stalls and you, you roll over to uh, the high side. So you'll see that in this next video. So I did this video with tufting on the wings uh, so that you'd be able to see how the stall progression happens. And that was in a slip and you'll see that the high wing stalled first and we rolled over the top. The next video I took from the inside of my Bonanza and you'll notice I put an extra inclinometer over on the right so that you can see that the ball is deflected toward the inside of my turn, meaning I'm not giving enough rudder to coordinate my turn and what happens is the high wing stalls first and we roll over the top. And, that's, that, and yeah. that's a great point for pilots to remember. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So in the next slide, you'll see uh, a diagram of a skid where the ball is deflected toward the outside of the turn. That's when you're the insidious thing is that your low wing has a higher angle of attack. It stalls first and you'll go under the bottom. Uh, and in the next video, you'll see, uh, first of all, the, the Cessna with the tufting. Uh, and you'll see that in this hitting stall, the lowing stalls first, and you'll go under the bottom. And this is the, the ending of the classic base to final stall spin, and nobody should have that sight picture turning final. And in the next video, you'll see the same thing with the Bonanza. Uh, this is a uh, skidding stall. So as is uh, evidenced by the fact that the ball is in the outside of uh, my turn. And you'll see that that lower wing tucks under and you can see the result of that. And that's, I don't care how good an aerobatic pilot you are. Uh, if you're three or 400 feet above the ground, that's probably fatal. But it, it's really that finesse, that, that coordinated dance, if you will, that all of us pilots, because we get our, our attention focused outside and we're not really, um, you know, uh, really getting the proper sight picture, but overseeing what's going on 
with that uh, that turn and bank or the the turn and slip indicator. Right. And then, and then from, from there, you know, the entrance to the, I presume the, the spiral or the, the spin um, is, is the outcome of all of that. Right. So the spin will either develop typically or it turns into a spiral. But in some sense, in the pattern, if you're low, it doesn't matter if it's going to spiral out or actually develop into a spin. Really, the result is the same. Uh, from either one of those flight conditions, you need a certain amount of altitude to recover. And my point with this slide is that, you know, when people tell me, oh, this airplane always drops this wing, well, no. Uh, it, what matters is how you are not coordinated. If you are slipping, your high wing is going to stall first. If you're skidding, your low wing is going to stall first. And there is only one way to be coordinated and infinitely many ways to slip and skid. And that's why it's, it's pretty easy to drop a wing uh, during stall practice. So what do you have as far as advice and, and what it is that we need to be really paying attention to, to avoid getting ourselves into this situation? And then, of course, what is the, the magic uh, phrase and bullet and, and thoughts about, you know, if we do inadvertently get into it, how do we get out of it? Sure. You, you mean of the, of the spin itself? How do we avoid them? And then if we're in it, then how do we recover from them? Okay, well, first of all, um, certainly it makes sense to try to stay coordinated, which can mean a pretty good dance on the rudder pedals. Uh, but instead of focusing on that, what I like to do is focus on pushing. As I said, you know, there are lots of ways to be uncoordinated and it's pretty easy to not be perfectly coordinated. So when in doubt, uh, the real answer is push forward and immediately any roll off uh, will stop. So, you know, spinning involves both stalled wings and a lack of coordinated flight. So if you push and unstall the wings, then uh, that's the big answer. Uh, but certainly uh, learning to use uh, proper rudder control is is important, too. And what are your techniques in, when you're training this, you know, the, the spin uh, awareness and, and spin avoidance? What are some of the techniques that you like to impart in students so that they, they understand? Because like, we all, we've all been taught, you know, about the rudder and using the rudder to stop the spin or the, the spiral and things like that. And, you know, while it sounds good, it may not always be the correct answer. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, exercises that I do with every student is, you know, it's great that we practice spins um, or stalls, excuse me, trying to stay coordinated, but I make sure that that we're not. So I will make sure that we're skidding and I'll make sure that we're slipping and I ask them to see the full effect. So the airplane goes upside down and I just want the, them to witness the entire phenomenon to just dispel any myths because I think some people uh, have an irrational fear of stalls and spins just because they're afraid of what they don't know on the other side. So I like to dispel those myths. But then after what I, I like to do is um, share with them how easy it is to stay out of those. So first of all, I let them go over the edge. I let the airplane go upside down in that stalling uh, or the skidding or, or slipping stall. 
And then the next time I ask them to do the very same thing and I ask them to wait for the roll off to start to occur. And with forward yoke, with immediate forward yoke, they, um, they see how immediate the roll off stops. And, I, and they walk away with the power of knowing that even if they're on their way into a spin, they can they have at their disposal uh, what it means to need what they need to stop it, which is basically pushing on the yoke. And I think that's a a great point that you just brought up because it's so counterintuitive to push mm. because we're not really practicing it, of course, and and we're we're we haven't really been taught about you know the the power of the push, if you will. And I Absolutely. think that's a great point for pilots to remember. Yeah, and I want to echo what uh, Dan was saying uh, earlier. I think everyone should have this kind of training, uh, either spins or aerobatics, just to uh, dispel them of these, um, you know, notions that aren't serving them well or these irrational fears. I like to replace an irrational fear with a healthy respect, and that's what I feel like I do uh, at my school. And I will put in, as uh, Dan did, a plug for uh, the WINGS program. All of that training can be done within uh, the WINGS program. And, you know, you can uh, have a great learning opportunity and have fun with it as well and satisfy your next flight review. Yeah, and I think uh, I, I think this kind of training is really important, as Dan and I talked. Loss of control has been a, a major issue over the past several years. The NTSB, the FAA have been trying to find ways to, to mitigate these loss of control accidents. And I think this training and this knowledge alone will help mitigate a lot of those loss of control accidents because pilots just are under a misperception about what you're talking about. Stall shouldn't be feared. And if you do get into a steep spiral or a spin, you still have the, the opportunity and the ability to recover before it really gets out of hand. I agree. Great. Well, I want to thank, uh, you, Catherine, uh, and congratulations again on being the 2018 General Aviation Fast Team Member of the Year. Um, I think that uh, I know that from your presentation, Dan, and Bill's, I've learned a lot, uh, again, since we've met, and I hope that tonight's audience has, has done the same thing, because this is just great information that you can't find in a book. I know that, Catherine, you're writing an, an article uh, that's going to come out very shortly talking about all of this. And I, I encourage the audience to read those articles and continue to read. Go out and go out beyond the, the boundaries, if you will. Stretch the imagination and build that knowledge base as Dan was talking about and Bill was talking about. If you're buying an airplane, you're into vintage airplanes or even the newer airplane, the more you know, the better off you will be because you'll have a better understanding of what's going on with your aircraft and yourself whenever you get into a situation that creates that startle effect. So I want to say thank you to, uh, to the three honorees tonight. It's been an honor uh, being the host and, again, learning from all three of you. So thank you very much, and congratulations to all of you for this prestigious award. Thanks to all of you. Thanks. Thank you. And I want to talk tonight uh, about how you can get involved as well. You can see on the screen that there is a slide that talks about how you can participate. And I, I encourage you to participate. 
Um, again, this isn't an award that you go out and just do things for a year so that you can get recognized. This is a peer group award. This is a peer award. This is an award that is well-deserved by not only the three folks that you heard from tonight, but all of the past recipients. They've created a passion in this thing we call aviation. They have lived a, a full life of aviation and contributed and given back. And I think that everyone out there has that same potential. So I encourage you to get involved in the General Aviation Awards, whether it's something that you've done in the award or being a sponsor uh, for an award or recognizing somebody in your peer group, a colleague, that you believe deserve an award like this for their contribution, because it is important. That's how we support general aviation. So being a sponsor, again, you see uh, a slide. We have some great sponsors, and, and in our next slide, you're going to see who really supports the general aviation awards. This isn't something that, uh, you know, was just drummed up overnight. But when you look at it, I mean, you have the FAA, of course, you have the King Schools, and you have PAMA and a number of other major sponsors. They believe in it. And if they believe in it, you should believe in it. So it's been an honor tonight for me to be the host of the General Aviation Awards uh, presentation, the webcast tonight. This is our beta program, if you will. We hope that it's been educational. We hope that you'll look at it in the archive if you have additional questions or you maybe didn't get what you wanted to get because you were trying to listen to a lot of things. This will be archived and you'll be able to go back and review it again. And of course, these three folks, I'm sure that if you hunt them down on the internet, they will be happy to answer questions if you have a particular question. So again, on behalf of myself and of course the General Aviation Awards, thank you very much for spending the last hour with us. And I hope that you will come back and visit us, not only here on another webcast, but of course come by and see the next year's recipients at Oshkosh 2019. Thank you very much. Have a good evening and fly safe.